0: The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new non-fiction books. My guest today is Lynn Povich, whose book, The Good Girls Revolt, How the Women of Newsweek Sued Their Bosses and Changed the Workplace, has just been published by Public Affairs. Lynn, thank you for coming into the Slate studio to talk about it. It's my pleasure, June. Thank you. I should just begin with a disclosure. During the time that the events Lynn describes in this book happened, Newsweek was owned by the Washington Post Company, which today owns Slate though it sold Newsweek in 2010. Lynn, one of the things I was a little concerned about when I saw the subject of your book was that journalists are always excessively interested in things that happen to other journalists. But the events that you described so effectively, which did indeed happen to a group of journalists at a great news magazine in the early 1970s, are typical of things that happened to other women in other workplaces at that time, wouldn't you say?
1: Yes. The uh, help-wanted ads in the 60s were help-wanted male and help-wanted female. So jobs that were open to women were secretaries, assistants, nurses, teachers, training programs at department stores like Bloomingdale. So it was
0: rampant throughout corporate America, too. Do You start your book with the retelling of the Newsweek revolt that happened on March 16, 1970. What happened that day? Well... The Newsweek system is that the jobs
1: are segregated by function, that the reporters report stories and hand files to writers who write the stories and the researchers fact check, unlike newspapers where a reporter goes out, reports, comes back and writes the story and is responsible for the accuracy of the story. Mm -hmm. So at the time, Newsweek, like Time Magazine, a copied Time Magazine system, not only segregated the functions of journalism, but segregated them by gender. So that only men were hired as reporters and writers and editors, and women were hired as researchers, actually on the mail desk to deliver mail and to clip newspapers and then become researchers. So this was a class from which women could rarely get promoted. And the women researchers started organizing in the late 1969 When Newsweek decided to write a cover story on the women's movement because it was gaining steam and it was very newsworthy, the problem was there were no women writers at Newsweek. I was a junior writer. I wasn't really experienced enough at that time to write a cover. And they knew they couldn't have a man write the cover. So for the first time in its history, it went outside of the staff and hired a woman who was a star writer at the New York Post to freelance this piece and write the cover story. And we, who were organizing, realized this was a godsend. It was a news peg, and that the day that Newsweek appeared on the newsstands, March sixteenth, 1970, with a cover that said, Women in Revolt, 46 of us announced that we were suing the magazine for sex discrimination. We knew the publicity would shame the editors far more than the discrimination.
0: Well, though when you did talk to the editor, and you asked why virtually all the researchers were women and almost all the writers were men. He said it was news magazine tradition, which is so hard to come back to. You know, What do you say? It's tradition.
1: Well, it, it essentially underscored
0: the institutional sexism of right. Time and Newsweek. One of the things that I was very struck with when I was reading the book was you have very effectively described that you all were very happy to be at Newsweek. It was a place that you were very happy to go to every morning You loved being there. It seemed like there was this incredible office culture, but that didn't mean that you weren't going to complain about this terrible sexist situation.
1: Yes, uh, it it was a great place to get hired in the 60s. You were dealing with the matters of the day, and the reporters and writers was a very collegial place. It was a patriarchy in that sense, but... Most of us did not know what we wanted to do. And many of us didn't have a sense of career when we came out of college. We were highly educated, but not educated to have careers. We basically expected to get married and have children. The women who knew they wanted to be journalists or writers and came to Newsweek and were hired as researchers or on the mail desk, realized right away they were never going to get promoted. Mm -hmm. And they left very quickly to go on to very successful careers. Uh, Women like Nora Ephron, Mm -hmm. Ellen Goodman, Mm -hmm. Jane Bryant Quinn, and Susan Brown Miller. I mean, one was told in the interview, if you want to write, go someplace else. Women do not write at Newsweek. I was lucky. I had a wonderful boss who was very encouraging, a mentor, All of the mentors then were men (laughs) for the women. My boss was particularly good and um, helped me learn to report and write and suggested that I get promoted to a junior writer, which I was in
0: 1969. Well, let's go back to Nora Ephron, who, as you said, worked at Newsweek for a short while before she realized she wasn't going to be able to do what she wanted to do there. And she said... But what is interesting is how institutionally sexist it was without necessarily being personally sexist. Your description of the place back in the 60s sounds like, and I hope you'll forgive at this point a very cliche uh, comparison, the world of madmen. I mean, you have this great description of life in the magazine back then.
1: (laughs) There... was, um, in especially in the mid to late 60s, while the sexual revolution was mm-hmm. going on, there was just a lot of sex going on in the magazine. I mean, and almost all of it was consensual, whether people were married or single, men or women, married or single. <laughs> um, And Nora says, you know, if they wanted to sleep with you and if you didn't want to sleep with them, you just said no. But, you know, there were behaviors which definitely crossed the line. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were inappropriate things said to women. There were inappropriate physical touching on women. And there were instances and one in particular where an editor sort of stalked one of his researchers. He had a real crush on her Mm -hmm. and indeed asked her to marry him. And when she said no basically said, then you'll have to leave Newsweek and uh, made her life miserable. What what happened in that case? She left. (laughs) But no one really knew it. She didn't protest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It
0: was too scary. So you had started at Newsweek. You'd gone straight from college, as I recall, straight from Vassar. I was interviewed at Newsweek
1: in New York as a researcher, but I just wanted to go to Paris. And so I had an interview with the Paris bureau chief who did not have any jobs at the time. But as I was leaving college, a job opened up as a secretary. And so my first job was in the Paris bureau as the secretary. Seems like a fairly... I was happy to do it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But then you came back to New York. I came back to New York a year and a half later. And because I had worked with the Newsweek, in fact, done some reporting in Paris, Mm -hmm. I started as a
0: researcher. Tell me how you started to organize. Um, How did you get these 46 women to sign the complaint? What what was your technique? Well, the first
1: woman who started the suit, Judy Gingold, who was a Marshall scholar and couldn't find a job when she came back to New York, learned through a conversation with a friend of hers who was a lawyer that this was illegal according to the Civil Rights Act. So she started talking to two of her best friends who had been in the nation department where she was. And then they brought in a Third and fourth, I was the fifth Mm -hmm. person. And by then I was sharing an office with Judy. And we were talking about how to organize. We were terrified we were going to be fired if they found out. Mm -hmm. And so one by one, we would approach a woman in the ladies' room, that famous (laughs) command central for organizing, (laughs) or tears, depending on how you used it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would approach someone at the sink. First, we'd make sure there was no one. We'd look under the stalls and make sure no one (laughs) else was there. And say something like, you know, oh, I've got to check this story by this guy and, you know, I could have written it better than him. And if she responded, then we would say, you know, we're thinking about doing something. Are you interested? And one by one, we kept it a one-on-one situation until we had about 20 women. And then because it was the women's movement, you had to do everything by consensus. Uh, We decided to hire a lawyer and make a group
0: decision – on what we would do once the lawyer laid out our options. Right. Found yourself with Eleanor Holmes Norton, who we know we know today as having been for the last 21 years, the District of Columbia's representative in the House of Representatives. But back then, she was a young lawyer at the ACLU. But she'd worked with Muhammad Ali. She'd worked with George Wallace and Julian Bond. You talk about how you almost felt that you didn't belong in that company.
1: Well, you know, she did some really high-profile cases, and Eleanor was involved with the civil rights movement for a long time. And so we thought, you know, a bunch of... Upper middle class, white privileged women wouldn't be very sexy. But first of all, she took the magazine out of our hands when we met with her and said the fact that there are men from the very top to the next to the last category and then only women in the bottom category means that there's a pattern of discrimination. And she also said to me later that what interested her was that we were professional women and therefore working in a company where all the the judgments were quite subjective. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, I believe, and according to Eleanor, she doesn't know of any other case where we were the first female class action suit.
0: One of the things you talk about is how it was tricky for you because your father, Shirley Povich, was a very famous sports writer at the Washington Post for a very long time. And so you kind of had a connection with Mrs. Graham, who owned the company at the time. How
1: how did that affect you? Well, it was interesting. I mean, uh, my father, who is a very good friend of Mrs. Graham and her husband and her father even asked her if she if she would arrange for an interview for me when I was in college, and she did. As I said, there was no job at the time, and we loved the Grahams in our family, and I think they considered us members of the Post family. Yes. So when we were about to sue, I called my father, and I explained why we were suing, You know, he understood that. It was such a clear case of discrimination. Mm -hmm. He didn't mind. You know, he understood it was a little touchy. I was now suing his boss. I don't know if he ever said anything to Catherine Graham or she to him. He Mm -hmm. certainly never told me. But I felt after that that she was hurt by the fact that I was in this suit. She never said it directly to me. She was always very gracious to me. But I felt a kind of coolness, and I'm sure... She was surprised that of all the people involved, I would be one of them.
0: And yet there also must have been a sense in your group that the company was owned by the Graham family, which was led by Catherine Graham. She was one of the very few female heads of media companies. You must have sort of expected some sympathy from We Mrs. did. Graham. In fact, at one point when we were trying
1: to figure out what to do, one of the women said, let's just go to Catherine Graham and tell her what the problem is interesting, if you read her marvelous book, she wrote the most marvelous autobiography, the most honest and courageous Mm -hmm. one. Catherine Graham grew up in a wealthy family. Her father bought the Washington Post in 1933. She was a reporter in San Francisco and other places before she got married. She married this very talented man, Philip Graham, who ended up being the editor of the Washington Post. And she went home to raise their children. And then after he died, she stepped in to take over the Washington Post Company and keep the company in the family. And as she describes herself in those years of the 60s and early 70s, she was very insecure. She has said many times, and I have her quoted as saying, she thought a man could do her job better than she. And it's a shame because she was such a smart, talented person, and as we saw her grow through the Watergate years, a very courageous woman in her own right. But as you said, as the owner, one of two women owners of major news organizations, the other being Dolly Schiff at the New York Post, she was often the only woman in the room. And she wasn't allowed in the gridiron club. Mm -hmm. And she had to retire with the women at Washington dinner parties and not sit with the men and discuss the issues of the day. So she was
0: clearly discriminated Mm -hmm. against. So let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, the Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. The Good Girls' Revolt isn't on Audible, for the moment at least, but Gloria Steinem is a character in the events of the book. And if you're interested in feminism in the 1970s and beyond, her collection of essays, Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions, is on Audible and it's read by Steinem herself. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download one of the hundred thousand books available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com afterword slash afterward. If you use that URL, the afterward will get credit. Audiblepodcast.com slash afterward. Now, Public Affairs has very kindly given us four copies of the Good Girls Revolt to give away to listeners, and Lynn has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words Good Girls Giveaway in the subject line to slate at gmail.com by 1159 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, October 5th, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after the win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, afterward at gmail.com. <laughs> talking with Lim Povich, author of the new book, The Good Girls Revolt. Let's take you back to, to where we were before. You've got the four, six women, you've got your great attorney, Eleanor Holmes Norton, and you make your complaint before the EEOC. What happened then?
1: Well, on the Monday that we uh, announced our suit, Oz Elliott immediately just said, let's meet and start talking. And so we immediately went into negotiations with Oz Elliott. Osborne Elliott was the editor-in-chief of of Newsweek at the time. He later said to me he knew – on that Monday that the women were right. This is a man who put Newsweek on the face of of journalism and transformed Newsweek into one of the hot magazines of the 60s by his coverage of the civil rights movement and, and the anti-war movement. It was ironic that right under his nose of the, this progressive editor was a whole cast of women that were being discriminated against. Mm-hmm. We negotiated very quickly an agreement that we signed in August that promised to hire and promote. The problem was the language was fairly vague and also that Oz then went to the business side as president and CEO and that the editors who took over from him were not as committed to making things happen. So things moved very slowly. The first few women who tried out from the staff failed their writing tryouts. The number I remember is that... Five women ultimately were hired as editors in the first year and a half, while 15 men were hired at the same time. Uh, And so about a year and a half later, being so frustrated, we actually voted to sue again.
0: Yeah. And so that time, though, Eleanor Holmes Norton had gone on to another job. And so you found a new attorney, Harriet Rabb. Harriet Rabb was a young—I mean, she was only probably
1: 27 or so herself at Columbia— law school, brilliant woman, also had been involved in the civil rights movement. I worked for a counselor. And she was doing a new employment rights seminar at Columbia. This was a whole new sector of the law coming out of the Civil Rights Act. And she took our case and she started Quantifying all the instances of discrimination and also applying goals and timetables Mm -hmm. so that in those negotiations, we could ask that a third of the writers and the reporters to be women. And a third of the researchers to be men. Very important to integrate Mm -hmm. the research category to show that it was an entry-level job, not a woman's job. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that we asked for was that we have a woman senior editor by the end of 1975. It was basically two years to find a woman. And I was told they went to Gloria Steinem, who by now was editing her own magazine, Ms. Magazine to see if she'd be interested in being a senior editor at Newsweek, which of course she wasn't. But she said to me, you know, I'm not surprised because I was like Jose Greco, the only Spanish dancer (laughs) they knew. And they started trying out a a woman at Newsweek who was a wonderful reporter and writer, a brilliant reporter and writer who had been in Paris where I first met her and then Washington and was then brought to New York named Elizabeth Peer. And Liz tried out for a couple months, but she just wasn't a manager. She didn't have the temperament mm-hmm. to manage people. So then they asked me if I would try out. And I did for three or four months. And I didn't know how well I was doing, but I certainly enjoyed it. And in August of 1975, Oz moved on and the new editor in chief of Newsweek was a man named Ed Kozner. And he decided to promote me to the a senior editor, which would which meant that I was the first woman senior editor in the history of the magazine. That's fantastic. And what was the date when that happened? It was September 1st, 1975. So they had three months. There, yes, that's three right.
0: They months. beat the deadline. <laughs> and do you think you got the job because of the women's protest? Do you think you would have gotten that job no, otherwise? Of course.
1: I always say I'm an affirmative action baby. I am proud of it. <laughs> I, that would That job would have never been offered to me. And I was talking to Anna Quinlan, and she said, you know, I always say I'm an affirmative action person. Too because she said, People get upset when I say that. And I said, You know, if you think affirmative action is about hiring a mediocre, less talented person simply because. They are a woman or a black, you're looking at one. <laughs> you know, it opened the door for a lot of very talented women.
0: Yeah. And Harriet Rabb then went on also to having won the Newsweek case, she represented women at other meetings. Yes, companies.
1: because she represented us and we had gotten so much publicity, she then went on to represent the women at the Reader's Digest and the New York Times women called her to represent them in their very famous case, which was a very contentious case. Mm-hmm. They ultimately settled but it was pretty nasty.
0: You use an interesting phrase when you talk about the way that the women of Newsweek around 1970, especially the younger ones, felt. You were women in transition raised in one era and coming of age in another very different time. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, women were from the um, 30s, 40s, post-war era were really raised to be get married and have children. You could be smart, but not too smart. You couldn't really be too ambitious. You wanted to be nice. You didn't want to make the men feel uncomfortable, and you wanted to be attractive, to attract a great guy. And so half of my class in college got married the June they graduated. You know, a lot of women who had worked during the war because the men were fighting had gone back to raising children in suburbia. And so many of our mothers, weren't working women uh, certainly a lot of women were working and certainly working class women were working and certainly a lot of african american people were working but many of us came out of that sort of housewife culture and yet when the 60s started and the these movements between the civil rights movement the anti-war movement and then the women's movement which actually spoke to us happened it sort of galvanized us out of this uh, or started actually getting us to question all of these roles that we were taught to believe in and to and this was the hardest thing to sort of challenge them and reject much of what we were raised to believe yeah
0: but the protest the organizing the lawsuit the whole experience did radicalize many of the women who were involved and it did make a big difference at the magazine
1: absolutely i mean some women were there already and yeah.
0: and we always need those women who
1: you know are pushing you and they're angry and they really understand the situation the rest of us sort of woke up to the injustice and grabbed onto it in various ways and and the bonding over this lawsuit really did, for me, I can speak, sort of radicalize me, made me much more aware of political situations, and certainly I've spent the rest of my life working on women's issues, as Mm -hmm. have have many of the women in the Mm -hmm. lawsuit. But not everyone succeeded. I just don't want to paint a rosy picture here. You know, it was a hard transition. Some women didn't make that transition. There was a wonderfully talented uh, researcher on the staff who was offered two promotions. One as a reporter, which she turned down. And then offered uh, a writing position, which she also turned down. And she said to me, I just couldn't see myself doing that. I was raised, to believe to get married and have children, and I just couldn't make the transition, mm. even though I thought women should be equal.
0: I'm afraid I don't remember her name, but you have a great section at the end a kind of, you know, where are they now? And um, the woman who had been the head of research, who felt a little pressure to take a writing job, said that she almost regretted it she had found the job that she wanted to do
1: yes she joined our suit this is a woman named Faye Willie who was 10 years older than we were and very experienced had a PhD in American studies and probably knew more about foreign affairs where she was the head researcher than most of the writers who were writing about it but she joined the suit not because she wanted to be a writer she wanted research to be valued as much as reporting and I think in the end she was pressured by the movement, by women, by seeing people who were becoming writers who knew less than she to start becoming a writer. She was a good writer. She wasn't a star writer, Mm -hmm. but she didn't have the kind of influence in that role that she did as the head researcher in the
0: foreign affairs department. Do you think the suit and the actions that, that you took also made a difference outside of Newsweek?
1: Well, it certainly influenced in the media the women who came after us. I mean, I can't tell you how many women said because of our suit. Mm-hmm. Either they sued like at the New Haven Register or as I mentioned before, the Times. Everyone in all the women in the media knew about it because we were the first. But I also think that all of the suits in the media changed the workplace for women because it changed the media. And the media is a reflection of society. So as women got into news positions and started writing about the women's movement, issues that affect women and influence women, then other women began to see themselves in bylines, in photographs, in sources and things. Mm. So the media has that megaphone effect in society. Thank you so
0: much. That was Lynn Povich, whose new book, The Good Girls Revolt, How the Women of Newsweek Sued Their Bosses and Changed the Workplace, is available in bookstores now. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you so much, June. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For slate.com, I'm June Thomas.